Welcome. I'm Jessica Ward. I'm Luca Lucarini. And I'm Elon Levy. And together, we are your hosts for the Health Podcast Series brought to you by Dentons. These sessions will cover various topics in the health tech, life sciences, and healthcare sectors, and aims to provide you with small segments that you can listen to on the go. You can find our episodes at dentons.com on our podcast page. There you can access our episodes as well as a description for each topic and information on our speakers. And now over to our podcast topics and speakers. In today's episode, we are sitting down with Rose Carter, who will be discussing the power of law in the area of public health. She is one of Denton's lead lawyers in health law and has over 30 years of experience in this field. Welcome to the podcast, Rose. So Rose, thank you so much for joining us once again. And to start off, I think a lot of our listeners don't really know what the basis of health law is and what's really encompassed in that pretty broad bucket. Um, so maybe just start off with the general background for our listeners of what really is health law and what goes into it. As, as you said, Eli, it's a very broad field in the area of law. Basically, it breaks down into two broad categories. One is litigation. For example, medical negligence uh, facing healthcare professionals, including uh, pharmacists, uh, physiotherapists, nurses, uh, obviously physicians and surgeons, and the list goes on. The other part is uh, regulatory, which is very important uh, primarily for the business community and professionals. Regulatory is a huge field uh, for any uh, drugs that um, one is trying to put in the market. Health Canada covers all of that. Uh, The cosmetics that a customer buys in the store in Canada, that's uh, regulated. There is uh, market regulations. If you're going to uh, go to market, for example, to secure funding uh, for clinical trials or to bring a new medical device to market, uh, new drugs to market, anything that Health Canada covers is uh, in the area of health law. So it's really interesting the way you put that, that kind of is that the very broad bucket that really any consumer products can end up being in a bucket of health law through one mechanism or another. Correct. For example, Health Canada regulates the following. Our food that we buy, cosmetics, workplace safety, uh, veterinary uh, drugs. Uh, Veterinarians, for example, are um, regulated professionals. Pesticides, what farmers use and uh, other businesses for getting rid of uh, rodents, etc. Any medical devices. Not surprisingly, tobacco products, cannabis, which is now obviously uh, legal in Canada, but is very heavily regulated. And uh, the full bucket of consumer products, such as hand sanitizers, for example, um, any over-the-counter medications, and of course, of great interest to the pharmaceutical and uh, medical professions, is the uh, drugs that you and I buy at drugstores, such as everything from aspirin to uh, cancer patient uh, getting uh, heavy doses of opioids from the pharmacist, for example, to deal with pain control. 
and being such a heavily regulated field, um, obviously it's always ever evolving and always changing. Are there any common issues and trends that you're seeing with respect to Health Canada? Um, one thing that comes to my mind is the recent increase in health tech, um, especially in light of the rise in telemedicine. Um, are there any constant things that you're kind of seeing that you think our viewers would be interested to know about? Yes, well, uh, you've hit the nail on the head with men mentioning telemedicine. Telemedicine is a rapidly growing field, not only in Canada, but internationally. It is heavily regulated. And what companies don't always understand is that this is not like putting an app out there for us to watch a, a TV program or uh, some other uh, entertainment, for example. This is a regulated uh, area and is becoming more regulated as we move forward. There have been breaches in um, telemedicine already occurring in Canada. The most widely publicized one is the Babylon program that TELUS put out. And uh, the commissioner, for example, in Alberta, the privacy commissioner just brought out a, uh, a report on the breaches that occurred um, with uh, TELUS's Babylon uh, program and all the corrections they have to make. So if a company wants to get into telemedicine, they have to understand uh, that um, the professionals that they will be bringing on board to uh, see patients through uh, technology, they are very heavily regulated. For example, the College of Physician Surgeons across this country as regulations for how uh, physicians and surgeons have to conduct themselves if they are treating patients via telemedicine. It's the same for nurse practitioners. It's the same for pharmacists. The number one thing that um, is of paramount concern to companies and of course to patients and the regulated medical professionals is the security of the patient information. For example, um, often uh, a company has to have its um, technology approved by the Privacy Commissioner in a province prior to it being able to be used. If a physician wants to set up a telemedicine practice from his or her office, the device that they're going to be using to communicate with the patient has to be approved, it has to be secure. All the same requirements are in place as occurs when you're seeing a patient face-to-face, -face. but there's the added layer of not only the security of the verbal communication between the healthcare provider and the patient, but also the security of the information that they have. So in the old days, and still often now, when we go to see a physician, for example, he or she has a paper chart that they use and make notes on. That is rapidly uh, being done away with where now physicians type on their computers 
when you go in to see them. And that information is highly, highly regulated and must be uh, totally protected. And professionals can be disciplined by their regulatory bodies if that uh, information is not secured enough and so it is hacked. And there are huge ramifications for that, not only with the regulators, but also the patient, of course, uh, can sue the uh, provider of that technology. So the company that is uh, servicing uh, the physician or nurse or pharmacist, but also uh, the professional. So all of those people face incredible liability and regulatory consequences if there is a breach in uh, the information uh, that they hold because our health information is very valuable on the black market. Imagine if insurance companies could uh, access all health information for Canadians, what that would enable them to do in pricing insurance, for example, uh, black marketeers. There are all sorts of ways that our private health information can uh, be misused. So, so Rose, what are some uh, steps that these organizations and service providers can take to avoid these pitfalls and ensure the data security that they are holding? First of all, you should uh, deal with professionals, uh, lawyers, uh, data security people who are very conversant with the regulations regulating the area to understand all the different bodies uh, that uh, regulate what you want to do. I've already mentioned, for example, uh, the colleges of physician surgeons, uh, the nursing colleges, the pharmaceutical colleges, et cetera, et cetera, who regulate all the providers. And then you have the privacy commissioners across the country, as well as our federal legislation in relation to privacy. And uh, their regulations have to be followed and uh, kept up to date on an ongoing basis. Uh, there are also uh, requirements, for example, to have standard uh, operating policies and procedures for when things go wrong, for when there's a complaint, Etc. So it's very important to have um, a full team around you who can uh, give advice going into the project during the life of the project and what to do at the end of the project. For example, if um, a physician or a company working with a physician uh, wants to shut down the telemedicine uh, portion of the operation, so the physician will just go back to seeing patients face to face. What is going to happen with the prior patient information that is now on a server somewhere? And talking about servers, companies have to be very aware that uh, the Canadian authorities do not like and will not allow generally there are some exceptions uh, that health information be kept outside of the country. 
And if that is going to occur, the patient must give an informed consent, must know where their health information is being housed. In pre-technology days, of course, the patient was comfortable that uh, their health information was in a locked covered in their physician's office. That's not the case anymore. With the Babylon situation, for example, there, the health information was being held in Ireland and there was a breach. And so most patients would not even give thought to what, where is the information going that my healthcare provider is typing in the computer as I share my health conditions with him or her. They don't even think about that, but regulators do, and therefore providers have to give a great deal of thought to that as well. So from a contractual perspective as well, when contracting for servers, um, quite often there's a subcontracting provision that organizations should be very aware of in terms of uh, permitting data to be stored in certain locations. And that's certainly something for organizations to be cognizant of. That's correct. Uh, patients have to give informed consent to treatments and uh, where their da data is going to be stored. So patients have to be aware uh, and given that information, but also patients have to be told how they can get access to their health information. So let's say that um, a patient uh, needs healthcare information on a weekend. So they go on their computer and uh, they speak to a doctor through a telemedicine uh, portal. Then the next week they have to follow the family doctor in their hometown. They go and see the family doctor and the family doctor wants a copy of the record created during that telemedicine interaction that occurred a few days before, the patient has to know who to contact and how to get access to that information. And that is their legal right. So it, there must be a way for them to gain access to it in a very timely fashion. So organizations should have proactive policies in place and processes that patients can access and that their staff can access in order to produce this information as required. That is correct. And uh, regulated professionals, their colleges have standards as to uh, patient information retention and the steps that have to be followed uh, in dealing with those. What is the retention period for records? Is it five years? Is that correct? Um, usually it's no less than 10 years. However, the limitation period in our country for suing, for example, medical negligence is two years from the date the patient should have known when the damage occurred. So that's when the clock starts running. That's fine if you're an adult, 10 years may be fine to keep the records. But if you're dealing with a child, you have to keep those records until the child reaches the age of majority in whichever province the care was provided. 
And then we always recommend adding another two to three years. I always say three years because um, when the child reaches the age of majority, they have two years in which to sue the healthcare provider or the uh, manufacturer of the medical device or whatever it is uh, that they feel went wrong in their care. And then most uh, of the Canadian provinces have a period of time during which the patient or the patient's lawyer can serve that legal document on the healthcare provider. And that's usually a year. So a healthcare provider may not know when they're going to get sued or if they're going to get sued until that period of time has expired. And it is almost impossible to successfully defend a case if there are no contemporaneous notes available of the care that was given. So it sounds at this point as if it becomes quite complex for regulated professionals in these spaces to ensure that the data that they are storing is not only secure and compliant with regulatory standards, but also will stay in, in the location where it is stored for the length of time as needed, particularly when treating minor patients. Exactly, exactly. So uh, for example, when healthcare providers retire from a practice of uh, medicine, they can't just throw their records away. They have to have a storage area uh, for those records so that their patients in the years to come have access um, and can request those records. And, and Rose, kind of taking a bit of a sidestep, um, I think something that's kind of on the back of people's minds just with the whole vaccine trials and things like that is in terms of Health Canada and bringing a new drug from a conception of an idea, as well as, as to the extent it's applicable to health tech, health tech and health technology as a whole, um, what really is the steps in, from a regulatory standpoint from taking an idea from merely being on the drawing board to commercialization and being able to make an organization successful? Um, could you just give a brief primer on the general regulatory landscape on this? Certainly. Again, this comes under the umbrella of Health Canada's regulation. This is a very lengthy and very costly journey for a, say, a medical device or a drug uh, to be brought to market, going from the bench into clinical trials. At each step of the way, Health Canada is involved. They are, have numerous regulations in this regard. When uh, the drug is ready to be tested on humans, there are three stages of uh, trials uh, that the drug company has to go through. This doesn't just involve Health Canada but it also involves the institution in which uh, the drug is being developed. So if it's on a university campus, the university's regulations have to be followed. Before any human trials can be conducted, the request has to go to an ethics committee. 
and the ethics committee has to review the protocols and uh, give their permission or deny the application. Health Canada requires before moving very far along that the uh, absolute certainty that uh, the company has ethics approval uh, to move uh, to uh, human trials. Along the way, during the journey of uh, bringing the drug to market, and many of these drugs uh, fail, they never, they never get to market. It can cost company millions of dollars and uh, for a futile journey. But we're always hopeful, and we saw during COVID-19 the incredible speed with which uh, vaccines were brought to the market. That is truly, truly remarkable. Of course, that occurred because uh, there was much money available and uh, things were fast-tracked. For the COVID-related matter, just to take a sidestep for a moment, Health Canada Institute of, instituted a fast-track so that uh, COVID-related uh, devices, uh, ventilators, uh, respirators, uh, vaccines, uh, personal protective equipment, could be fast-tracked and uh, made available uh, to the public. Getting back to the uh, journey to bring a new drug to market, uh, during uh, significant steps in the journey, uh, the um, developers have to uh, keep Health Canada informed. If anything goes wrong, if there's an adverse reaction during the uh, human trial testing, Health Canada must be notified immediately and Health Canada can uh, shut down uh, the clinical trials at that uh, point. During this journey, of course, companies often go to the marketplace. And one of the things I do as part of my broad health law practice is I review prospectuses for when companies are going to market to seek uh, funds. The, why does a health law lawyer have to look at prospectus? That's because our job is to be certain that all the regulations are followed and uh, that all the um, concerns are brought forward. Advising the potential investor when they read the prospectus that this is going to be a long journey and I've just given you an abbreviated um, snapshot of that journey to get to market. So companies who do this on a regular basis will make it very clear in the prospectus, with our help, of course, uh, that uh, the monies may be lost, that this is a long-term journey and there may be no reward at the end. So uh, think very carefully, the prospectus is warning the potential investor before you put your money in this. Obviously, if everything goes well, and we always hope it does, there are potentially huge rewards for um, the developers at the end of the journey. And, and, and on that point on how from the capital raising perspective, the risks that can be involved in and how so much time and money has to go into getting a product to be able to go to market down the road. Do you see any common pitfalls or best practices people can follow um, 
I'm, I'm just thinking in general um, that given the amount of money that is involved, um, obviously that's a major pitfall, running out of money, not being able to take something to market in time, having to go back to investors and funds not being available. Um, but are there any other just common best practices, even as simple as making sure an organization is with the correct people? Um, is there anything that you've seen that kind of is a success model in that space? Yes, I think that um, as with any good business model, you have to have a good group of professionals around you, not just the size that you're dealing with, but uh, financial advisors, financial institutions, uh, lawyers, obviously, who are very familiar with the Securities Commission's requirements, uh, the regulatory uh, field in the health law area. All of those things should be well mapped out and uh, obviously thought about uh, prior to even thinking about going uh, to the marketplace. Because if uh, a potential inventor has not thought these things through, they may find that at the first or second or third phase of their journey, they've already run out of money and uh, they have uh, nowhere else to turn. So they have to uh, think very carefully about this. Uh, with one of the COVID-19 uh, vaccine, uh, vaccine inventors, for example, I had the privilege of hearing him interviewed on um, television, and he was talking about the difficulty that his company had in finding financing to uh, hopefully be able to bring the uh, vaccine to market. They were successful in getting funding and uh, were able to bring the product to market to benefit uh, not only Canadians, but uh, citizens around the world. So, well, Rose, thank you so much for that information. It's very important for organizations and for investors to know. And thank you so much for speaking with us today. And we appreciate it. I uh, very much enjoyed uh, being with you and the interesting questions that you asked me. I hope that the listeners um, have um, garnered uh, the depth and breadth of the health law area. Thank you. Denton's is a global legal practice providing client services worldwide through its member firms and affiliates. This episode is not designed to provide legal or other advice, and you should not take or refrain from taking action based on its content. Please see Denton's.com for legal notices. Our speakers from this podcast episode or any other professional in our group would be pleased to speak with you on today's topic or any other related topic. Thank you for listening and stay tuned for other episodes.